Good afternoon, and welcome to Building a Greener Idaho, your weekly Radio Boise program covering the intersection of people, profit, and planet. Building a Greener Idaho has recently begun a partnership with the Idaho Environmental Forum, a nonprofit association whose mission is to promote serious, cordial, and productive discourse on a broad range of environmental policies and topics affecting Idaho. Today's show is a rebroadcasting of their December forum on the Idaho Dark Skies Preserve. Astronomer Matt Benjamin of the University of Colorado and Steve Bautai, mayor of Stanley, spoke to the importance of dark skies and the process Central Idaho has been going through to earn the dark skies designation. At the time of this recording, the designation was not official, but it's my pleasure to share the exciting news that Central Idaho has earned the designation of America's first gold tier international dark sky reserve. Before we get to the show, a little housekeeping note. We've tried to edit this for radio, but a few visual references are still made. If you'd like to follow along or view the presentations after listening to the show, go to buildingagreeneridaho.org for those resources. Full biographies of the speakers can also be found there. So without further ado, we'll begin with opening remarks by Marie Kellner, the IEF board chairperson. Today's presentation is called Bringing the Dark to Light. The Great American Eclipse of 2017 led millions of Americans to look at the sky in a way that many of us have not been accustomed to. And that was as true in Idaho as anywhere else in the nation, or really the world. Multiple landscapes in Idaho boast vast open space, relatively far from urban areas and their inherent light. And numerous communities and public spaces across Idaho are beginning to recognize the beauty and solitude of the dark night sky as a resource not to be taken for granted. Today's speakers are here to share with us about one such proposal in Idaho. It's called the Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve. Please help me in welcoming Steve Bottai and Matt Benjamin. Welcome, uh, Matt Benjamin, thank you all for having me. Marie, thanks for the invite and for the IEF. This is a pleasure uh, to be here. I'm actually uh, really thrilled to be talking about dark skies and light pollution. This has been sort of a pet project, a passion. I think you'll see Steve and I sometimes compete for who's got the most passion for uh, uh, this topic and enthusiasm. And so, you know, what really, I think what's really important here is we want to talk about perspective. And that's what really makes this issue of light pollution and dark skies, I think, rather interesting, is we get to actually touch on perspective. Uh, For me as an astronomer, it's always maintaining that perspective that really allows us to feel insignificant. And in some ways, as a scientist, being in, feeling insignificant is really the core of being able to stay in touch with what you do and why we do it. Um, and, and this image here really exemplifies perspective. Um, and it's really sort of poignant to be showing this image, an image taken by the Cassini spacecraft orbiting Saturn, because Cassini just ended its mission uh, by plummeting into the atmosphere here earlier uh, this summer. After 13 years of discovering things we never thought were, were known in our solar system, Cassini decided to take a, uh, an image looking back home. That's Earth, that little dot. And so from about 2 billion miles, we get to have this perspective of our home world, something we kind of take for granted living here. Now, what I find interesting is this is reflected sunlight, sort of cosmic light pollution, I guess you could call it, um, of Earth. But when we're here, we're also emitting light. And we're also looking at the impacts that we have. And so we want to maintain that perspective, be it looking at our atmosphere, our water, um, all the issues we have with our climate changing rapidly as we see it. So having that perspective and realizing how fragile and rather insignificant this place is, I think, should give us some pause and realize we need to take care of uh, the precious place that we have. Something that's been happening really, and I I can't say Thomas Edison really thought this to be a consequence of inventing the light bulb, but nonetheless, 80% 80% of Americans cannot see the Milky Way from their homes. 
It's kind of staggering when you think about that. Um, and so you start to realize, you know, light pollution is an issue. Um, and it really does affect how we see the sky, the cosmos, and the heavens. Um, we've got whole generations of people who have never seen the Milky Way. Now, I grew up in Los Angeles, um, and that's about as bad as light pollution gets, unless you're in Times Square in New York. Um, maybe that's, that can be pretty rough, too. Um, and uh, I was there during the Northridge earthquake. And during the Northridge earthquake, uh, power was cut out to about maybe three-quarters of the L.A. basin. And if you've come and flown into L.A., you can see that it's kind of horizon to horizon. So when I mean three-fourths of, of L.A. without power, you get a sense of then uh, the amount of light that's cut out. This earthquake happened around 3 a.m. So if you've ever been in an earthquake, uh, you head outside and you know, check your water, check your gas, and you make sure that everything's good. You're usually wearing very little or, or, or maybe a few things because it's L.A. climate, and you hang out for an hour or two until you're told, good thumbs up, you go back in. Well, you've got a few million people hanging out outside realizing for the first time, what is this strip? Interesting thing, back in the 90s, I'm sorry to date myself, phones worked even though the power was out uh, back then, and so people were calling the uh, Griffith Observatory in Mount Wilson, calling them incessantly wondering what is this predominant unmoving cloud people had never seen before. So in some ways we go, oh, thanks for natural disasters to turn out the lights that happened in Houston, but we don't want natural disasters to be the reason people finally gain the perspective uh, that we've had for millennia. So let's do something about it proactively rather than waiting for Mother Nature to turn out the lights. Now Mother Nature is not turning out the lights. This is the epitome of anthropogenics, of, of human-caused impact on the earth. Uh, we can, there, there's many convoluted, uh, so, uh, talking about climate change, we can get into the muddy water uh, or talk about the very clear science, but we can step aside from talking about atmosphere and groundwater or surface water or deforestation and talk about light pollution and there's no mistake, it is black and white. We turned on the lights, we also can be the ones to turn off the lights. And so this is a nice way to really look at uh, an impact we're having on the surrounding environment and we are the only ones that can do something about it. Um, for dark sky enthusiasts, I suggest North Korea as a wonderful place to go. Um, I hear there's some probably pretty cheap real estate, uh, but nonetheless it's literally one of the darkest places in the world uh, because of the uh, economic sanctions and, and how they work with their rolling blackouts. So interestingly enough, the geopolitical thing is actually an advocacy for dark skies. Hey, gotta throw that in there. So one of the things we really want to touch on is this is what light pollution is at its core. It is the lights that we have outside, street lights, uh, house lights, building lights, and not being covered, they just go into the air. And the spectrum of the light reflects and scatters off the atmosphere and gives the air a glow. And that is what uh, light pollution is at its core. And you can imagine where you have large population centers, you have lots of sky glow from light pollution. But it's not that it's just static. This is a problem that has been getting worse and it makes sense. Urbanization, population growth, these are all things. And as energy has gotten cheaper, people feel the need that they can put up more lights. Um, and so all of these factors really play into where you have a growing problem. The problem with light pollution is you can't put a fence around it. You can't put a boom around it like an oil spill or something. You, you can't do that. Light pollution will affect you over 100 miles away. And so you have to really think of, where is there anywhere in the US that's 100 miles or more away from a city? 
So what is really going on with light pollution? We say, okay, great, it's the lights. Like, what, is this really having an impact other than maybe aesthetically I want to see the stars, I want to geek out? Or is this really just a, a coup of astronomers saying, clear our skies, we want to use our telescopes? No, no, this is actually a real impact. And recent studies are showing that this impact is, is actually quite severe uh, as the studies dive in deeper. Bird migration is one of the areas that has been studied um, because a lot of our nighttime and sort of evening nocturnal fowl actually navigate by the very light and use the, sun, the moon's light to help them navigate. In fact, we have lots and lots of death to birds because of buildings and other artificial lights that either attract them or disorient them. And so this is an issue of not just preserving and caring for our nocturnal uh, animals that fly throughout and migrate, but also an opportunity to say, look, we don't want to disrupt their regular patterns as a whole. And so that's something that's definitely been studied uh, quite regularly. <clears throat> the other is communication. Uh, this is something that actually has been quite rampant in the Northeast. Have you guys ever been to the Northeast and, and seen the fireflies and all that stuff? Yeah, it's tremendous. Um, I believe in Shenandoah National Park. They have one of the most spectacular firefly displays uh, in the U.S. And, but when you have light pollution, this creates confusion. It actually creates, it's harder for them to actually execute glowing their bioluminescence as part of their mating ritual. And so you actually hurt species just by having ambient light pollution in that regard. Lastly, you have some ecosystem interactions. And this one's actually particularly interesting and important given the, what we have with our salmon fisheries here in Idaho and uh, moving throughout the Columbia River Basin and up through the Snake River is you've got harbor seals that will predate on these. In fact, what you've do done is a few studies that have shown when they have lights on versus lights off, um, the actual predation rate of harbor seals of the salmon is actually by, uh, changes by about two orders of magnitude. That's by a hundred times. That's quite a f phenomenal feat when you realize that there's an opportunity here just by that to impact the salmon fishery in terms of them coming upstream um, just by having light pollution change. Last is disorientation. This one's probably the most tragic. Um, this has to do with sea turtles and how sea turtles actually um, come out of the sand in Florida. They've actually got communities where they turn off all the lights. One of the issues is they actually require using the glare across the ocean, be it from the moon or stars, to let them know that that's where the water is. But then if you've got light pollution in the streets, they actually go inland. And so you actually have them where they go inland and get run over by cars. And so they've been actively turning off the lights here. So there's an impact on ecosystems, on ecology. Uh, this graph here actually shows us LEDs, be it TV screens and other things in the RGB uh, uh, part of the spectrum that they emit, and it corresponding to the actual melatonin production and what frequencies the body responds to in producing melatonin, which is one of the chemicals that helps us fall asleep. And so it's interesting that the correspondence here is our body's sleep cycle is actually disrupted by the blue light. So this is rather interesting. The part of this is when we have our sky, it's blue. That actually stimulates cortisol, which is a stimulant, which helps you get up, gets ready, gets ready going for the day. And melatonin actually does not like to have that blue light at all in your body. So when you look at your screens and before bed, try not to do it. If you're screen heavy, give yourself that break. So same is true with the bluish white lights that we have around at night that interferes with our human sleep pattern. And so by direct, we're trying to help ourselves illuminate, but we're also then hurting ourselves directly in that physical manner. So these are a lot of little interesting ways in where the science is starting to tell us a compelling case that the way in which we go about combating light pollution is thus hurting us. And I sort of you know wanted to touch a little bit on 
really our ancestors. Because in some ways, seeing the stars, seeing the cosmos is our connection to our ancestors. In fact, they were right all along. Many ancestral peoples and our ancient cultures looked at the stars and heavens and that's where their ancestors were, right? This is where that you'd go when you'd pass into the world, into the heavens. Well, interestingly enough, these cultures were all right, be it the Druids at Stonehenge, the Egyptians at Giza, the ancestral Pueblo at Chaco Canyon, or the Mayas at Chichen Itza um, in the Yucatan. What they found here really is that physically, from, from a physical perspective, they were right because we are star stuff. When we see the stars in the heavens, we see our physical ancestry. The iron in your blood, the carbon and calcium in your bones actually came from stars that died long ago. So losing sight of the stars, losing sight of the galaxies actually means we're losing a physical relationship with our direct physical ancestry, the DNA, the elemental ancestry that we all share um, as, as species on this planet. And so that is worth preserving just as much as it was any of those monuments around the world. And I'll just touch sort of in closing here, one of the things uh, that I did want to make sure you were aware of is how we measure the success of our dark skies. As an astronomer, as someone who's taught astronomy for a long time, there's one object in the northern hemisphere that always tells me that it's dark, and that's the Andromeda galaxy. If you can't see it with your eyes, you gotta use a telescope. But when you can see the nearest galaxy with your eye, you're in a real special place. In central Idaho, you can see the Andromeda galaxy with your naked eye on just about every night with the exception of maybe a full moon. And that is something I look forward to every time I come to visit up here, is, is specifically to go out, find Cassiopeia, and look for the Andromeda galaxy. In some ways, it kind of lets me know I'm home, right? It's sort of your homing beacon in that way. And I think it's important to have that connection to the cosmos of being able to connect back with where you are and why you're there. Um, and seeing Andromeda is certainly one of them. So thank you guys very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, Steve Bakhtai is going to come up right now and talk and get a little bit more detail about the specifics of the Dark Sky Reserve. Thank you guys so much. Welcome back to Building a Greener Idaho. We now return you to the rebroadcasting of the Idaho Environmental Forum's December presentation on the Idaho Dark Skies Reserve. Thank all of you for coming and for your interest in this topic. It's really an honor to be with you today to talk about our efforts to create an international dark sky reserve in Idaho. And just to clear any misconceptions right up front here, we're not inviting the North Koreans over to tell us how to do it. <laughs> we have a better plan, which I'm going to tell you about a little bit here. Preserving the dark, as we like to call it, is a topic that's definitely been getting a lot of interest and press lately. And Matt gave an excellent introduction to that, which he always does. It's always hard to follow Matt uh, in this type of program. How could anybody listen to that and not be a believer is, is kind of what I think every time I hear him. But I'm going to try to focus in a little bit more on the specifics of what we're trying to do in central Idaho. I'm sure all of you know about national parks and wilderness areas 
and national forests, but some of you may not have heard about international dark sky reserves. So let me give you a little background about what they are and why we believe they're important and why we want to create one in central Idaho. There's a growing recognition throughout the world about the threats proposed by light pollution. I think Matt covered that pretty eloquently. Threats not just to natural ecosystems, but to our own cultural heritage going back for eons. And dark sky reserves offer one way to address those threats. In a nutshell, I guess the, uh, the purpose of the reserves is to preserve some of the last really dark places in the world and maybe even reverse that trend a little bit in some places and uh, make things a little better. So the focus of the Dark Sky Reserve program is on areas that face immediate threats. So the focus is on those areas rather than really remote areas say the Arctic, subarctic regions where you can definitely find really dark night skies pretty much all the time, but those areas are not very accessible to most people. So the areas that are accessible, that's what the Dark Sky Reserve Program is really designed to focus on, is how to preserve some of those places that are really accessible to people. There are only 11 dark sky reserves in the world. Eight of those are in Europe. One is in New Zealand, one is in Canada, and one is in Namibia. There are none in the United States. So we're losing the dark in the United States at an alarming rate. And as Matt showed you, 80% um, of the people in the United States cannot see the Milky Way where they live. That's according to the New World Atlas of Night Sky Brightness that just came out. So that percentage is going to grow. Dark Sky Reserve are part of a program by the International Dark Sky Association, which some of you may have heard about. And it's part of their program to create what they call dark sky places. There are three cornerstones required to become a dark sky place, and they are reducing light pollution by shielding outdoor lights, which means making the light project downward to the surface rather than up into the sky and eliminating unnecessary lights. So it's not just shielding the lights that you have, but thinking about which ones you really need in order to produce the light that is really required. And then the third thing is converting to a warmer color of light, as Matt pointed out, that's much more environmentally friendly. So keep those three things in mind. The International Dark Sky Association is a nonprofit organization based in Tucson and has no regulatory authority. That's a misconception that a lot of people have, is that this is some external entity that's going to impose its will upon the local area. That's not true. This is not a federal government program. It's not even a state government program. Its reserves are created by the commitment of local areas to preserve the dark sky resource. And that commitment is then recognized and certified by the Dark Sky Association. So that's how these things come to be. They don't exist without this commitment from the local communities and landscapes that are involved. There are dark sky communities, parks, sanctuaries, and reserves. Those are the four main areas. Dark sky reserves are the most difficult status to achieve. Parks and sanctuaries are these individual management units, so they control their own destiny. And 
they have few developments that produce light pollution. So think of Black Canyon of the Gunnison National Park. This is an area that's still in a fairly remote location, pretty far away from large population centers, so it has a, a fairly pristine night sky. These kind of areas have always been destinations that people wanted to visit in the daytime, but that's changing now because of this loss of the dark, they're becoming much more destinations now for people to come and view the night sky. So th this dark sky park program is expanding very rapidly, especially in national parks. So dark sky communities, now what are those things? So dark sky communities do not have the same night sky quality as a park, but they are recognized because of their commitment to those three cornerstones that we talked about earlier. And they have control over a lot of that because cities are where most of the light pollution is coming from. So part of that commitment from dark sky communities is to pass ordinances, what they call dark sky ordinances, that regulate the shielding of lights and the number of lights and the number of areas like that. Uh, think of Ketchum and Sun Valley. And these cities have had dark sky ordinances for quite some time and a lot has been accomplished but if you look closely at this image you can see there's still some places there where there's light going up into the sky so there's still more work to be done Ketchum became a dark sky community I believe it was in October so that's the first one in Idaho and the last one to be designated in the United States currently Ketchum recently revised its ordinance to require even higher standards of protection than it had going all the way back to 1999. And it is purchasing even more dark friendly street lights. So this situation is going to improve in Ketchum even though it's not too bad right now. So what are dark sky reserves? We've talked about parks and communities. Reserves are sort of a combination of those two things. They have exceptionally dark park-like core areas that are surrounded by communities like Ketchum and Sun Valley that are taking steps to reduce the impact of their light pollution on the dark core areas of the reserve. So think of the dark sky over Stanley Lake or the Sawtooth National Recreation Area as a whole. So think of these areas being protected by the collaborative efforts of its neighbors and you have the Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve. So reducing the sky glow from outdoor lights can have a beneficial effect far beyond the reach of the cities themselves and Matt talked some about this. So the actual lights coming out of Boise and the cities was modeled to show how the, the light dome from those cities spreads outward and can have an effect even far away, as Matt pointed out. What we're trying to do is protect these dark core areas from the lights intruding. And for instance, here in, in Boise, light might be 500% above the natural background level of the dark sky. But as it spreads outward in these bands, the effect becomes more subtle but still important. And even in Ketchum, which has far fewer lights than Boise, you can see these bands spreading outward toward the central dark core that we're trying to protect. So bringing Ketchum and Sun Valley into the reserve is an important step because their effect is where most of the light pollution is coming from currently. So when we started this quest to create the reserve, we thought it was a long shot. 
This happened about maybe three years ago, and at that time there was a lot of controversy going on about creating wilderness in the Boulder White Cloud Mountains or maybe uh, a, uh, a monument there. And we knew that to create the reserve, to make it happen, we would have to bring together four counties, three cities, the Forest Service, and over 4,000 people who would live within the reserve boundaries. So that seemed like a daunting task at the time. But here we are, just about three years later, and we have an excellent chance of creating the first dark sky reserve in the United States. It looks very promising that we'll be able to do it. So why create this in central Idaho? Well, it seemed like a perfect fit for us at the time when we looked at this position on the landscape. Ketchum, Sun Valley, Blaine County, and Custer County already had dark sky ordinances in place that required shielding of outdoor lights, which is one of the requirements for becoming a reserve. And we had this really dark core area here with three wilderness areas, the Sawtooth, White Clouds, and the Hemingway Boulders down here. It seemed logical if we were going to protect the wilderness values of these places that we should think not just about the landscape of that country but also about the starscape above it. So we have one of the darkest skies in the country but only 75 miles from Boise. So it's still very accessible and that's something that seemed important that we have a way to go through pretty much through the center of the reserve where people can really come and enjoy it. So the pieces were there and the will was there to create this and there was lots of enthusiasm and there was a commitment by all of the jurisdictions and the local residents and organizations and we owe a special thanks to the Forest Service the staff of the Sawtooth National Forest and the Sawtooth National Recreation Area because becoming part of Dark Sky Reserve is really breaking new ground for the Forest Service. There are no large areas in the country that they manage that are part of Dark Sky Parks or Reserves at this time. So it would be nice if this set a precedent for other areas and hopefully it will once we get things rolling. And I also need to give a special thanks and recognition to the Idaho Conservation League. I'm not sure without their help and dedication and work that we could have pulled this off or almost pulling this off. So thanks very much to Idaho Conservation League. And before I close, I'd like to leave you with one final thought. Uh, in this country and the world, there has been a sustained effort for decades to deal with the effects of air pollution and water pollution, but not so much light pollution. This is sort of a new thing, as Matt was pointing out, that at least until recently, not much thought has been given to the effect of light pollution on us and the natural environment. But this is changing. This view is changing pretty rapidly now. The press and the media have really caught up on what's going on. And with a little more awareness of the science of light pollution, and a little more thoughtful approach to what we do with our outside lighting. We can still have our artificial light at night as well as still seeing the starry sky. So <clears throat> we don't have to give up one to have the other. We can still have both if we just work on it. And so we think this dark sky reserve is a good place to start and 
of course, it requires a commitment to move forward in the future. It's not just a one-time thing, get the recognition and it's done. So we plan to continue this collaborative effort between cities and counties and the Forest Service and move things forward. So thank you very much. This has been a rebroadcasting of the Idaho Environmental Forum's January Dark Skies presentation. The Idaho Environmental Forum's next event will be their legislative gala on January 17th. For more information, go to our website at buildingagreeneridaho.org. For news on upcoming shows and to join the conversation, join us on Facebook. Building a Greener Idaho airs every Tuesday at 3 p.m. on Radio Boise.